Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Michelangelo's Workshop. As Christians, we know we ought to pray, but oftentimes we are perplexed by what to pray and how to pray in accordance with God's word and will. How are we to know? So many just give up praying with boldness and instead substitute it with trite, packaged, mealtime prayers. But what if instead of just giving up on prayer, we continued on praying boldly, trusting God's wisdom to redirect our petitions where we ask amiss, and walking in the knowledge that our desire is for Christ to be glorified. May we ask to the best of our understanding and yet leave all with the God of all. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Michelangelo's workshop. Uh, by the way, this is not uh, to elevate Michelangelo to some level that he shouldn't be on. Uh, he's a great artist from the Renaissance period of history. And, I mean, truly extraordinary. If any of you have ever seen uh, the Sistine Chapel or seen the uh, statue of David, well, then you know he's literally considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, artisans of all time. And so he's merely a symbolic placeholder in this, because I'm not really talking about a human artist. I'm talking about the greatest artist, which is God himself. And so we're going to be talking about Michelangelo's workshop, the place in which the great artist, the master artisan, crafts uh, his masterpieces. The scripture that we're going to go back to multiple times throughout this uh, message, and it's a somewhat of a mysterious scripture, and which is one of the reasons I feel that as the body of Christ, it would be helpful for us to take a little time and unpack it. But now this is in context of something. I'll give you some of the greater context as we progress, because the word likewise means it's referring to something. But likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So I made a little line in there big for us, and I'm going to make other parts of it big as we progress, because we're going to just sort of walk through 826 in Romans, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. Uh, you know, many of you have actually heard me talk about intercession. We've talked about Christ's intercession. It's what the cross is. It is, cross, it is Christ literally in our place, in our stead, making a plea for us, even with his very shed blood. He is representing us at that cross. It is a substitutionary work where he is standing in our place. And so when we look at this, we're seeing it's not just Jesus that is making intercession for us. It is one known as the Spirit. The rest of the Bible refer to him as the Holy Spirit. So my title is the, in, in this section is the intercession of Christ. Now, I just talked about the intercession of the Spirit but the intercession of Christ is well documented in Scripture. I'm going to just give you a few of the Scriptures. It is Christ, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He represents us. He stands in our place. He makes a plea on our behalf. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. This is speaking of Jesus. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. So it's really hard for me just to keep moving, but I'm going to. Because my point is just to show that Christ makes intercession for us. And the word in both of those, there's actually a few more scriptures, but the word in both of those is a very odd Greek word. Entuchano. Okay, and you actually are supposed to do the chich on the chich sound. 
which is really hard. I'm not very good at that. It's funny how Hebrew and Greek, God's like, how am I going to write the Bible? I'm going to use languages to go <laughs> all the time. And then we as you know, English speakers are always like, what in the world? Entuchano. And this is the, the classic word in the New Testament. It's a little different when you look at the word intercession in the Old Testament, but it's still similar. Uh, in the New Testament, it's mainly focused on the idea of prayer. So to pray or to entreat, to make intercession for another. Okay, so this is a key word. And yet what I want you to do is recognize it, okay? If you tried to spell it after the service, you'd probably get it wrong, okay? So for those of you that have a good photographic memory, take a picture of it. But entuchano. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the reason I asked you to take a picture of the smaller one, because we just enlarged it. Now, what you're going to know is the only difference, between, even though this is a very intimidating word. I mean, you try and pronounce that thing. Hooper uh, entuchano. I practiced, believe me. Uh, I, I actually listen to I usually listen to pronunciation, for because I usually now can recognize and pronounce the words in the Hebrew and the Greek, but every now and then one of these doozies pops up, and I need some serious help, which is why I'm really glad for pronunciation helps. But, huper entuchano. The only difference between entuchano and this word is a little chunk on the front end, the hyper. Okay, now when you hear the word hyper, you think of a little kid that has a little too much energy, right? And that's not necessarily the way the Greek word uses hyper, uh, which means, but it does sort of fit because it means above or more. And so talk about more energy than the rest of us, that's a hyper kid. And so it's not that it's fully not appropriate, but I'm going to introduce you to this because this is the word intercession in the Greek with hyper on the front of it. It's hyper intercession. Now, when we introduce you to Romans 8.26, it uses the word intercession, but it's actually a different Greek word. It's hyper intercession that the Spirit does on our behalf, which is very important in this message. So this is what we're going to call the shadowing, superintending, paternal intercession of a stronger party for a weaker party. This word is a very profound word, even though you may never be able to spell it or never be able to pronounce it. I don't care if you ever pronounce the Greek word, but I want you to understand the meaning and the, and the depth of what this means to us as Christians. So likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes hyperentuchano for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So this is what the Holy Spirit does on our behalf. And so it's very important that you understand what it is. Here's the best mental picture. I'm going to give you a few of them as we go through this. But I remember when I go putt-putt golfing with the kids, the kids, uh, they're not as competitive as daddy. So daddy usually doesn't golf, okay? I just help the kids because otherwise I start taking, it's like, let's keep score here. I don't want to just, you know, hit. But I have a whole bunch of little kids that don't care about that. They just like hitting the ball and they actually sort of like to hit it hard so it bounces out into someone else's area, you know? So daddy has to, you know intervene to make sure there's order here because they just like hitting things uh and so but when they start getting serious then they actually like daddy's help and so daddy will overshadow them i don't know if any of you have ever done this and reach over and grab and help them get the right uh handhold on the putter and then daddy will say you ready and you know straighten your feet straighten your feet. there you go there you go and daddy will pull back the putter and daddy will hit it, but actually it's not daddy, it's them that's doing it, but daddy is hooper entuchano. I am actually overshadowing, superintending the process of them hitting the ball. So they get credit for it, like, yeah! 
They get all excited, but guess who actually superintended and overshadowed and enabled the process? That's what this word means. Isn't that beautiful? And so as we begin to unpack this scripture, you begin to realize, it's like, whoa. By the way, I'm going to give you a hint. This is how Christianity works. Some of you are coming up with your little putter, and you can't figure out why you can't get it in the hole. Christianity is an impossible hole. It's like, yeah, you need to hit that in. And you're like, I can't do it no matter how hard you try. It's like, well, you need someone to help you. And when that someone overshadows you and enables it, the, he is faithful who has called you who also will do it. The hyper work of the Spirit. It's not a, the word we would typically associate with the Holy Spirit, hyper. But here's what hyper means in the Greek. On behalf of, for the sake of. Over. Now, here's where you're going to see some of that over, that overshadowing dimension. Over, beyond, more than, more, beyond, over. One who does a thing for another is conceived of as standing or bending over the one whom he would shield or defend. To be for one, to be on one's side, to favor and further one's cause. See, if you're interceding for someone, you're already doing much of that. But this is like an intercession that is actually overarching and enabling something to happen. The shadow of the superintending father. And so I just gave you that illustration of the putt-putt golf. But Charles Spurgeon has an illustration for us too. And after we read this scripture. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Isn't that an amazing thought when you, when you picture us resting under that superintending shadow. And when you read Psalm 91, you recognize that's the shadow you want to be under. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, he is my fortress, my God in him will I trust. He is my hooper entuchano. He is the one who shadows over me and enables me to do what otherwise I couldn't do. So bending the bow of steel. Here's a little clip from a sermon of Charles Spurgeon that I think was beautiful. Suppose it to be a time of war centuries back. Old English warfare was then conducted by bowmen to a great extent. Here is a youth who is to be initiated in the art of archery, and therefore he carries a bow. It is a strong bow and therefore very hard to draw. Indeed, it requires more strength than the urchin, young child, can summon to bend it. See how his father teaches him. Put your right hand here, my boy, and place your left hand so. Now pull. And as the youth pulls, his father's hands are on his hands, and the bow is drawn. The lad draws the bow. Aye, but it is quite as much his father, too. We cannot draw the bow of prayer alone. Sometimes a bow of steel is not broken by our hands, for we cannot even bend it. And then the Holy Ghost puts his mighty hand over ours and covers our weakness so that we draw. And lo, what splendid drawing of the bow it is to them. The bow bends so easily we wonder how it is. Away flies the arrow and it pierces the very center of the target. For he who giveth has won the day. But it was his secret might that made us strong. And to him be the glory of it. I mean, that's just, that's, that's beautiful. That's profound. How are you going to hit that target? Good luck on your own. You can't even bend the bow. You can't even bend the bow to shoot the arrow let alone hit the target. You know what sin is? Hamartia in the Greek means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. We can't even bend the bow to hit the target. 
All we're doing is bloop, dropping our arrows off everywhere but where they're supposed to go. You want to hit that target. There's only one who can enable it. There's only one who can hit that target. He doesn't just bend the bow, but he aims the bow. That is an amazing thought. And when you begin to catch that, you begin to realize how Christianity works. The impossible commission. So we're going to go back to the 1500s. And you're a young artist, a young budding artist. Or maybe I should say it this way, a young aspiring artist. Because to say budding means that you're actually producing fruit. But you're a young aspiring artist. You want to be a great artist. You just sort of lack the ability. Well, that's, that's like us. We are young aspiring Christians. What's a Christian? A little Christ. We, we want to be like him. That's the way I want to be. I want to love like he loves. I want to have joy and peace like that. I want to produce fruit of righteousness. That's what I want to do. When I get struck on one cheek, I want to turn the other. I want to be able to go to my death and die for others, even silent as a lamb unto suffering. Yeah, I want to be like that. I want to have a pure mind. No matter what baits me, whatever tempts me, there is a strength of soul that I can say, no, not on your life am I going to give way to that. Yeah, that's the way I want to be. And yet, eh, you're not quite budding. You're aspiring. You want to do it, but you don't know how to be such an artist. Well, could you imagine being such an artist and having the Florentine government of Italy actually commission you and say, yes, we have a huge marble slab. And this marble slab, by the way, is so gigantic. It's around 20 feet in height. And if we were going to measure that... We were thinking from the floor up to that beam is probably 15. So go another five feet higher than that. We are, I mean, this is a huge slab of marble. And we want you to produce a masterpiece out of it. We want you to reveal the Son of God out of it. And so you have a hammer and a chisel. Good luck. Okay, you have the impossible commission. You see, this is where Michelangelo comes in. Michelangelo was commissioned to do a statue that no other human up to that point had ever done. And it's known as David. And it is, he's, the David statue is 17 feet in height. So the impossible commission, be therefore perfect, even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. All right, go do it. Here's the hammer, here's the chisel. You do it. Be perfect, even as God is perfect. God. And you know what's funny is many of us actually attempt. With our hammer and chisel, we're like, all right. <laughs> I mean, it just says it. That's Jesus talking, by the way. You see, the law is a schoolmaster which leads us to Jesus. That's what the Bible says. And there you go. You have yourself the law. Do it. This is the commission. It's truth. You know that even after Jesus, that is still truth? You need to make the masterpiece. Your life is meant to declare the heavenlies, to show forth the perfection of Jesus Christ. Good luck. Here's a hammer. Here's a chisel. You're on your own? If we're on our own, there's nothing impossible that's coming out of our life. It's only that which is possible. That which is possible is what we're capable of, and most of us aren't even good at that. But this is the impossible. You and your humble workshop in Florence, Italy. So let's... Let's go back in time to the 1500s. There you are. And you're the aspiring artist. 
and you get the impossible commission. So we go into your humble workshop, and this is mine too. We all have the same humble workshop. By the way, it's our body. This is our workshop. This is the chosen workshop in which we will declare the glory of the heavens. And so in our little uh, way, with our hammer and our chisel, we're working on our life, and we're attempting to shape this majestic picture of perfection. Yeah, it's not coming out too well. So the massive block of imperfect marble. Michelangelo inherited a problem. And that is this massive piece of marble, which very likely was around 20 feet in height. And, I mean, this is, this is something that it took, I don't remember how many men it was. I mean, if, if it was 100 men to move. I mean, this is just this massive problem. So, in other words, Michelangelo on his own can't just budget around. And so he's just like, it's put in the middle of his workshop. And the problem is there were two master artisans before him that had failed in doing this sculpture. And so as a result, it had a hole in it, you know, where someone had probably attempted to start on the legs. And as he inherited someone else's foibles. And so just sort of like we did with Adam. Someone has sort of messed with this marble before we got it. It's not right. It's not as it should be. And so it was a flawed piece of marble. However, the Florentine government had paid big bucks for this piece of marble, and they were going to use it. And so even Leonardo da Vinci was asked to study the marble and, and make a, a, a suggestion of how it can be used or how he would use it. And the man who won the commission was a man named Michelangelo at the age of 26. And so they moved this big slab into his workshop. Well, this big slab is in your workshop. You know what the name of this big slab was? This is literally what they called it, the giant. They called it the giant. It was the unconquerable art piece. Two master artisans had been brought low by it. They had no idea how to do it. In fact, most artists would say if they, if they studied the, David, this is impossible. How in the world did he do this? Especially, that's without us even seeing the marble slab. Because of the thinness of it, very likely the slab was very thin. But somehow he had to work around the imperfections to do what most people would say is the greatest piece of artistry ever. That is an amazing statement. And by the way, this is a foreshadow, because I'm not talking about an earthly artist. I'm talking about the heavenly artist. And what does he have to work with? A very flawed slab. And guess what's staying in the middle of our workshop? A giant known as the giant of sin. What's amazing is even the story in the Old Testament is it's David that took down the giant. It's just an amazing picture. The massive block of imperfect mar marble, the young sculptor, that's you, that's me, and the commission. That's what we have to lug around. Be perfect. Do it, Eric. Hey, come on. You got the slab. Do it. You got a hammer. You got a chisel. Do it. Time's running out. How you coming along? Two masters have tried this before me. You know how many people have gone before you and have tried their hardest to make righteousness come out of this human life and have not been able to do it. Some of the most disciplined and diligent people on earth that have gone before you that have said, I will, through asceticism, I will live the life. Through restraint and through discipline, I will pull off righteousness. And they have failed. And you have inherited this tradition you have inherited the same slab. Out of the human life, there is no possible way that man himself can bring forth the masterpiece. 
That is where we are left. So that's a little picture of David. I mean, it's truly remarkable to think how even big that is. This is 17 feet in height, and the detail is, could you imagine with a hammer and a chisel trying to do an eye like that? I mean, it even looks like he has eyelashes. How in the world do you do that? Now, I'm guessing he doesn't, right? But how in the world do you do that? Well, if you ever walked through the Sistine Chapel, you'd probably think the same thing. How in the world? Well, Christianity is meant to be such a statement. When people see our life, they're supposed to say, that's not possible. That's impossible. It can't be done. Oh, it can be. But what you need is a master artisan, of which you and I are not. You see, we have a problem. We have a workshop. We have the slab of marble. We have everything, even the hammer and the chisel. We have the commission. We actually are in perfect position to do it, except for the fact that we can't. We have everything. You know, the angels aren't in a position to do this. They would long to have our workshop. They would long to have that hammer and chisel, but they aren't the privileged ones. We are the ones that receive the commission. And yet we can't do it. What a funny dilemma to be in. We even have the warehouse. We have a human body. You know, there's people that have gone before us that are long dead. They probably wish they could do it over again. And they wish they could have their warehouse back. They wish they could have that hammer and chisel back. They wish they could have that slab of marble back with what they know now. And yet we are the ones that have it. And yet we don't know what to do with it. We're just staring at the slab going, I have no idea. A tour of your workshop. So <clears throat> let's, let's go on a little tour of the workshop. We have the 20-foot giant is set up in the midst of the workshop. Two different master artisans before you have failed to transform this slab of marble. It remains the giant, haunting the Florentine government, mocking it for nearly a hundred years with its size and its daunting imperfections. So over a hundred years, two master artisans have failed. And if you remember the message overcoming sin, the Assyrian army had ruled uh, for a hundred years, and Israel and Judah trembled before its power. Well, it's sort of like this marble slab. Isn't that funny? I mean, most of us aren't intimidated by a marble slab. However, if your commission and your entire reputation career depends on that marble slab turning into something masterful, well, there's a little pressure. Now it's your turn. The sculptor that knows nothing of the craft, nothing of the craft of sculpting is commissioned to do the greatest work ever in the history of the world. You and me, we are the most preposterous choice for this job. I don't know anything about sculpting. I don't know anything about revealing Jesus. I don't even know God. How, why would I be chosen to reveal the perfection of the masterpiece of heaven that through my life and through my body, the world would see heaven? Well, that, that doesn't make sense. Why, why would I, me? I'm, I'm not your guy. And God says, you're perfect. God has chosen our workshop, our marble slab, our imperfections through which to reveal his masterpiece. A masterpiece is required. So here would be a good question for all the Ellerslie students. You are required to produce a masterpiece. It's called the image of God, the image of his dear son, to be conformed into that image. Do you have the ability in your own pockets to do this? No. Now listen closely. But do you have the ability? And so if we followed through and I said, how do you have the ability? You have it by faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel is unlocked not by us looking and searching in our pockets to say, oh, I found it. 
I found some latent talent. No, it's to say, I don't have it. I need to go elsewhere to get it. Introducing the master artisans. This guy's important in this whole story. The parakletos. Jesus, when he is preparing to die on the cross, is having a conversation with his disciples. And he says, you know, I'm going to be leaving you. And it's imperative that I do. But when I leave, I am going to send you someone. You see, he's not just going to leave. You see, he intercedes for us. But then when he leaves, he says, I'm going to send you the hooper. I'm going to send you the hyper version of this. I'm going to send you what's called in Scripture the helper or the parakletos. So that's our Greek word. I'm sorry to throw so many Greek words, especially long, awkward ones. But it's the advocate, the intercessor, the rescuer, the helper, the counselor, the comfort bringer is the Holy Spirit. So God promises, Jesus promises that he's not going to leave us helpless. He is not just going to leave us with a slab, 20-foot tall slab, and say, figure it out for yourself. He said, guys, I haven't done all this work for you that I would just leave you on your own now. I will supply you with everything you need. You can trust that. So even though I ascend, I am going to send forth one who will overshadow you. Someone who will walk this through with you who does know how to handle a hammer and a chisel. So here we are in John 14. This is a big little selection. Okay, don't be intimidated by it. It's not that long. But I'm going to read about the Holy Spirit and what Jesus says. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. So this one that is going to come will abide with us forever. The Spirit of truth is what he's known as, whom the world cannot receive Because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the parakletos, there he is, the intercessor, the helper, the rescuer, the one who will overshadow you and grab the putt-putter, the one who will help pull the bow, I can't pull this. Don't worry, I'm sending you one who can. So, but the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. But when the Paracletos has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. So what is this helper going to testify of? It's going to testify of Jesus. You see, what if you've never seen Jesus, yet you need to, out of this slab, somehow sculpt Jesus? good luck if you've never seen him. Well, guess what? We have a helper who moves in, who is very familiar with Jesus. He's God. And he has come from the Father to bring to us the picture of Jesus so that we would know what's supposed to be sculpted. We would know what it's supposed to look like. And when we're not making it look like that, guess what? We're convicted. And God halts our hammer, our chisel, says, no, no, over here. This is how you shape him. This is how you will be conformed into his image. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the parakletos will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. 
For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, and he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. So what I just read for you is everything that a master artisan would do if he overshadowed and held the hammer, even though it was your hand on the hammer, and held the chisel, even though it was your hand on the chisel. He's holding your hand. He's guiding the hammer. He's guiding the chisel. And that's what Jesus is saying is coming. The one who will direct you with the hammer blows, the one who will direct your chisel movements, he will convict you when you are off, and he will direct you. He will teach you all things. And what's he going to reveal? He's going to reveal the picture. He's going to reveal precisely what it needs to look like. He is the expert on Jesus Christ. And you have the lone expert in the universe on what this slab is supposed to look like when it's done. How could you fail? The master artisan has come to help you? You know what? I would get a little confident if I knew that Michelangelo strolled into my workshop and said, you need some help? Thank you. Yes. Well, we have one greater than Michelangelo that has come to do the sculpting. The Holy Spirit is his name. The parakletos, that hooper entukanos. So because those are such big words, and because very likely you are intimidated by them, let's rephrase this so that we no longer need to refer to big words today. The master artisan that holds my hand to direct the hammer and the chisel. That's who he is. That's the Holy Spirit. Now remember I said we're going to unpack Romans 8.26. So that's what we're doing even though you might not notice it yet. But I'm beginning to show you how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit has come to huper entuchano. Not just to intercede, but to literally take us and enable something to happen that otherwise couldn't happen. And it's not just the bending of a bow and a shooting of an arrow. It's the sculpting, the conforming of a life to bear an image. So the confession of the young sculptor. So this is you and me. And we're staring at our slab in our, where, in our workshop. We're pacing back and forth. I don't know if you've broken out into a sweat yet because you start feeling the, the clock ticking. Some of the Florentine officials have poked their head and said, how's it going in here? And you're like, ah, we'll get to it. I'm still in my, um, my, my creative stage. And you're like, oh, oh what, what do I do with this? Could you imagine how big that is? I mean, you'd need a whole scaffold built around it. This is huge. And out of this needs to come forth a picture of the Son of God. Ha, ha, wheeze. What do I do? So here's the confession of the young sculptor. All right. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know a thing about sculpting. I don't even know what I'm trying to sculpt. We're pretty pathetic, aren't we? I, that's just honesty. And when we get down to brass tacks, we have no clue what we're doing as Christians. We don't know. We try and act like we do because people are looking up to us as an example. Yeah, I got it all together. Thank you. No, this is, this is what we have. Now, who are we saying that to? Well, we're hoping someone's listening that knows more than we do. We, we have God. We have, but do we know that he's the master sculptor? You see, most of us have a disconnect in our spiritual life. We know what we're supposed to do, 
But we don't realize that we can't do it and that he intends to do it. So as a result, we have a panic in our life. But God never intended for us to do it, which is why we are so depleted. Yet he does intend for us to do it, but he intends to be a hooper into cano to enable us to do it. So the promise of the master artisan. So you read scripture and what do you find? You know what the master artisan is talking to us? What does he say? I know what I'm doing. You do? I know everything about sculpting. Oh, I know precisely what it is you need to sculpt. Okay. I will be a very present help in your time of need. When you don't know what to do, know that I will hold the chisel and I will direct you with the delicacy and the exactitude of a master artisan in order that you may sculpt as you must and in order that the world may see the glory and perfection of the son of David in and through this block of imperfect marble. That's the promise of scripture. And when you catch this, you can't help but smile. Because we are commissioned to do the impossible, but we've not been left to our own plausible ability. The God of the impossible wants to move in and wants to pick up our hammer and chisel and say, you ready to go to work? Becoming Michelangelo's workshop. See, when you think of a workshop, you think of a building. However, this is meant to be Michelangelo's workshop. This body is meant to be the dwelling place of the master artisan. He's supposed to come in. And yet to allow him in means that he calls the shots. If you've ever worked with an artist and you want to entrust something to them and say, could you take the lead? When you commission an artist, they're going to clear out everything and say, okay, this, this, this workshop needs to function as I would have a workshop then. If you want me to lead, it's my workshop. Well, that's a tough one to agree to because you've got some special things in there. You have a way of doing things. Yeah, but your way stinks. There's a way that seems right unto you as a young sculptor, and it leads to death. But there's a way that is right unto God, and it leads to the Son of God being revealed in and through our life. It reveals, to, reveals the picture of Jesus. And so are you willing to turn over your workshop? Lump. Are you willing to allow the master artisan in? This is his place now. So entrusting the imperfect slab and the impossible commission to someone greater. Well, I don't even know why we would hold on to the imperfect slab and say, hey, it's mine. Or how about the impossible commission, that we really want to carry the burden of that? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew that someone was saying, I'll carry that for you. I'll take that slab. You know that he can pick that thing up? Just like, whoop. You know, it's not as weighty to him as it is to the hundred men that carried it into our life. You see, this is unconquerable for man. But God is the master, and it is under his feet. So the name Michelangelo is extremely fascinating in this. It's not like, the, again, I'm not trying to make some statement that you need to study Michelangelo in history. It is a fascinating thing. Uh, but so just studying his name is, is a great name. It really does. And I don't know, some of you may think of naming your child Michelangelo after this, but it might be a little obvious, too. Uh, it's like, I know where he got that from. <laughs> Michael, who is like God. Angelo, well, it's like angel. But the one who serves, bears witness, and carries the message. So think about this. Think about who Michelangelo is in this situation. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the master artisan. This is the one who will reveal Jesus in and through this marble slab. 
Michelangelo, listen to this, the one who bears witness to what God is like and serves to see that the imperfect slab of marble reveals the perfect image. That's the master artisan right there, and it's written even into his name. Who is like God? And God himself comes and says, I will show you what God is like. He's the messenger. He's the one who carries all that is needed into our workshop to reveal the artistry of Michelangelo. So you're pacing back and forth in your workshop, studying your marble slab. Finally, you admit you need help. It takes some of us a long time to get to that place. Some of us, we still, you know, when people poke their head in the Florentine government, I got this. I got this. Just watch. I'm, I'm a good artist. I know it. And you tell yourself, you pat yourself on the back. It's the power of positive thinking. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. This will reveal God. Well, that's, that's not how we think. You see, Christians don't just work with the power of positive thinking. We work on fact, promise. What has God said? God said, yes, I've intended you, I've commissioned you to reveal my glory, but you can't do it. But what? what do you mean I can't do it? You see, when are we just going to agree with God? I can't do it, but then he says, you can't do it, Eric, but I can. That's what he says. I will. Faithful is he who has called us, who also will do it. He hasn't just commissioned us. He says, I will do it. So the letter to Michelangelo, so this is in your desperate moment, when you finally come to the end of yourself, in Christian history it's called the dark night of the soul. When you pick up pen and paper, or maybe it's quill and parchment, and you write a letter, dear Michelangelo, because you're thinking, who on earth can do this? You can only think of one. Well, that's the same with us. We can only think of one. Uh, dear Michelangelo, I know you're a busy man, but I wondered if you might be interested in taking charge of a project that is currently sitting in my workshop. It's a 20-foot tall slab of marble. Somehow out of this slab, which is marred by the faulty attempts of two different prior artisans giving it a go, I have been commissioned by the heavenly government to sculpt the image of the Son of David, a.k.a. Jesus Christ. Word on the street is you are the only artist in the world capable of such a feat. I am ready to give you the deed to my workshop. I am ready to give you all my tools from my head to my toes. I am ready to become your servant and be at your beck and call. But please consider this. I am quite desperate. I await your reply, the struggling artist. That's us. The answer from Michelangelo. This is, this is good. Oh, this is good. <clears throat> what does he say? Uh, Eric, you have not chosen me but I have chosen you. That's a strange response. We weren't expecting that. You see, we're desperate. And what is God's response? I'm the one that chose your workshop. I chose that slab of marble. I intend to work on it. Thank you for finally acknowledging. Thank you for inviting me. So listen to this. He writes a letter back. Dear struggling artist, I write this to you long before you will read it and long before you will ever even realize your need of my help. You know where you found this? You were walking around after writing your letter, and you see this little note stuck. It's like taped to the, your marble slab. You haven't seen it this entire time. I've taped this note to the slab of marble before you were born, and this day I've seen fit to direct your attention to it, for you are now ready to allow me to take the helm. 
I desire you to know that I'm inclined to your benefits and have always been postured as your advocate and have positioned myself long before you ever asked for my assistance to say yes to assisting you in fulfilling your impossible commission. Even as you were writing your letter to me, I was entering your workshop and consecrating your tools for my use. I am here now. I accept the deed to your workshop on behalf of Jesus Christ, the rightful possessor of this establishment, and I accept the offering of your tools, your body, and your life, for I will certainly use them. And I am here to do nothing more than to point you to the clear picture, to a clear picture of him. Out of this imperfect slab, I promise to reveal his glory. So take up the hammer and the chisel and let's go to work and together sculpt a masterpiece. Your heavenly helper, Michelangelo. Now, doesn't it sound somewhat on the edge of blasphemous to say that we are participating with him in revealing the glory of God? I mean, isn't it him that just does all of it? And yet, just like the putt-putton, it's the kid that gets the score, even though daddy is the one that actually helped it go straight. Daddy might have been the one that got it in the hole, and yet who gets the credit in a strange way, but the kid gets it on his score line. It's the same with us. You see, the boy can't pull back the bow. The father overshadows him and pulls it for him, and yet it's the boy's hand on the bow. And when it hits the target, it says, well done. Well done? The boy couldn't have done it without the father. How does the boy get any credit? It's hard to explain, isn't it? Why God shares it. But it's his choice. I've shared this many times at Ellerslie of Hudson uh, helping me shovel the Ludi driveway. The Ludi driveway, this is before, I actually mentioned this in some semester at Ellerslie, and the, the guys all felt so sorry for me that I didn't have a snowblower that they bought me a snowblower. So now I have to be very watchful of what I say and when I give stories. So I, I got a snowblower out of this story, by the way. I should throw in some more needs uh, while I'm at it, shouldn't I? <laughs> but we have this huge driveway, and so I would go out there, and a Colorado snowstorm can be very daunting. And so this was one of those huge, thick ones, you know, like the three feet. And so you have to literally carve it out, you know, cut a little slice out and then get the next layer. And so Hudson came out with me because he, he wanted to be with Daddy. And he had a little mini shovel. Uh, it looked just like Daddy's, but it was like this little mini uh, version. And so Daddy's shoveling, and Hudson comes out and sticks his shovel in the snow and whew, throws it up in the air. He was, I don't know what he was, two or three Throws it up in the air. It probably even landed on Daddy. Uh, back on the very area that I just cleared. And you know that Daddy wasn't upset. Now, I might have said something like, Hey, buddy, why don't we throw it over here to the side? However, do you know that it's my delight to have my son participate with me? Hudson lasted maybe a couple minutes and then went inside and came out maybe 20 minutes later. Daddy's a little further down. And he would go in and out. And he would sh you know, throw some snow up in the air. It'd land and mar my newly uh, shoveled area. And at the very end, guess who was there with me to finish up the project? Hudson. It's like, we did it. And so Hudson is so excited, and he runs in to tell Mommy, 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 Daddy and I shoveled the driveway. And he gets rewarded with hot chocolate and all sorts of special things. And Mama celebrates. You know that Daddy never once corrected him. Isn't that an amazing statement? Why would Daddy need to correct him? He, he helped me. Sort of. That's the kingdom of heaven. You see, God is the one doing the shoveling. He's the one pulling the bow. He's the one sculpting, but he uses us. He delights to overshadow us and have our hand on the hammer, our hand on the chisel. It's a relational thing for him. That's why he does it. He loves us. The conundrum. I must sculpt, but I don't know how to sculpt. Conundrums like the confusion, the question. 
the impossible to answer uh, question. Listen to this. This is what I'm preparing you for. I must pray, but I don't know how to pray. You see, there is a work of hammer and chisel in our life, and it's called prayer. Now, there's different hammers and chisels, obedience. There's different things that we do very specifically, like we've learned this semester of rejoicing. That's part of shaping the nature of Christ through us is obedience in those moments. But God has said very specifically that we ought to pray. And yet the funniest thing is we don't know what to pray. I don't, I don't know. I know I'm supposed to pray, but I, I don't know what to pray. How are you supposed to pray? Because a prayer is like a hammer against a chisel. And it actually does work on marble. And it's not just our marble. It's other people's marble. We're actually a part of a process. And we're participating with the Holy Spirit to do a work in our life and in others' lives. So the conundrum, the confusing question. All right. I know I need to pray, but I don't know how to pray. Romans 8. So there's a little more context for our Romans 8.26 scripture that I read you earlier. For we know that the whole creation groans. Now, I could emphasize groans in this uh, because groans is mentioned three times. It's the same Greek word, just in a different use each time. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So the context is hope, and it's talking about how hope buoys and gives perseverance, because if you have real hope, you can endure amazing trial, amazing difficulty. You can wait, you can endure. And so, just as hope works to buoy us, it says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. You see, you also have the help of the Spirit, not just hope, but you have the Spirit who's also helping you in your weakness. For we are very weak. We do not know how to live this life, and technically we do not have the equipment to live this life the way we are. But we have someone known as the Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession. There's our line. But the Spirit himself, you see, we know we're supposed to be praying. I know I'm supposed to hit this putt-putt ball. I know I'm supposed to pull back the bow. I know I'm supposed to sculpt the image of Christ out of this life and this imperfect slab. I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. But one overshadows us, fills us, enables us, grabs our hand, grabs our hand on the chisel and the hammer and says, I'll teach you all things. Strike that against the chisel. Like this? Sort of. Let's do it again. There you go. And every work of obedience, of allowing the Spirit of God to lead us forward, though our movements be imperfect, He takes our imperfect groaning and He translates it into the image of God. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The groaning of the saint. A groan is mentioned three times in this passage. A groan. What is a groan? 
it's the plea of the soul. I don't know how many times you've stared at this slab and known that it should look different, knowing that out of it should come forth something that would please God. But you stand before it and sigh. You stand before it and say, I am ill-equipped. I can't. And that groan, the wordless groan, the agony. Have you ever been in a difficult situation? Well, that's a, that's a funny way of saying it. Yes is the answer to that. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew you needed to pray, but you had no words to pray? That's what it's talking about. You know that you need to be doing something. You know that you're supposed to be picking up the hammer, but have you ever felt so weak? Your hand is trembling even as it's supposed to be holding the chisel, and you don't even know what it's supposed to look like. Everything, even your, your eyes are beclouded with tears. You can't even see straight to make a good chisel movement, let alone a masterpiece. And God says, hammer. I can't hammer. I don't want to mar the marble. Hammer. I have my hands on the hammer and on the chisel. Hammer. Swing. It's somehow in these points of weakness, God says, swing the hammer. And when we do, he directs it. He takes those groanings, those deep things in our life that are prayers in and of themselves, but they are wordless prayers. And he directs them to actually shape marble. So it's the plea of the soul, the unutterable grief of the inner man, the wordless cry, the sighing prayer. So you're the apprentice now. You've, you're no longer the one in charge of the workshop. You are the aspiring artist, but the better way of saying it now is you're the apprentice. You have come under the rulership of the master artisan to learn his way, to learn the way of the spirit. And so the groaning of the apprentice. I don't know what this would be like, but where the Holy Spirit is saying, as you're knowing, as you know in this world that there is a need for the glory of God to be made manifest out of this slab, and yet you don't know how to do it, that there is a groaning of the apprentice, the groaning of the aspiring artist, the desperate swing of the hammer upon the marble, the agony of the young sculptor to see evidence of Christ out of this imperfect marble slab. So out of this groaning, out of this I don't even want to call it a madman's swinging. But we don't really know how to do what we're doing. God says move, swing. He directs our swinging. And this is what we can call the master artistry of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he has to remove us from the situation. Get your hand off that hammer. Get your hand off that chisel. Let me do it. Actually, he takes our imperfect movements and he directs them. He takes our imperfect positioning of the chisel and he directs it or he uses it to his glory. He even uses, by the way, because the enemy comes in with all sorts of tempests from the outside, gusts of wind that knock over scaffolding right as we're doing an important chisel movement. He, he brings in, I mean, there's all sorts of stories even throughout history of, of David and this guy that came up with a sledgehammer and banged on the toes of David and smashed him. Well, that's the sort of thing we have too. Guys that come in out of nowhere, we didn't invite them in. And they come in with their sledgehammer. And yet, God takes everything the enemy means for evil and somehow transforms it into even a greater picture of his glory. You explain that. How can God take a sledgehammer to the leg of a David and somehow turn that into a greater picture of David? Most of us would sigh and groan and say, that's impossible. He says, swing the hammer and you'll see. I will direct it to actually turn even this into a picture of my glory. And that's the master artistry of the Holy Spirit. Basically, he wins. 
No matter what we do, no matter what the enemy does, God will take a submitted artisan, a young artisan like us, if we say, God, I, I just want to do it right, and he'll take everything we do and turn it into his glory. Now he'll teach us as we go, and we become more wise in how to do it. In other words, when we're at first, we have the chisel upside down, and we're hitting the sharp end of the chisel, and God says, no, no, let's turn that around. You see, he's instructing us. He's teaching us in all the ways of God. So he's teaching us not to hit with the, the, the side of the hammer, but with the end of the hammer. You see, he's instructing us in how to use the tools he's given us, but he takes our imperfect work and turns it into a perfect work. So we'll call the master artistry of the Holy Spirit the chisel of spirit-governed prayer. Prayer is a mystery. It really is. And any of you that have spent time praying, you realize that the more you pray, the less you seem to feel you know about prayer. And the more you begin to realize, wow, there's something bigger about this than I guess I understood. So these are some different attributes of how the Holy Spirit works with us. The Holy Spirit directs our chisel. Moses prayed. You know what it says in the Bible? It says, ask whatsoever you will and it will be done. So Moses prays. What did he pray for? He asked to enter the land of promise. So Moses prayed that he might enter the land of Canaan. <clears throat> but God denied him and instead led him to Mount Pisgah? Uh, uh, God, Moses. <laughs> Moses made a simple request. Was it a bad request? No. But who's directing the chisel? You know that God is making a statement in and through Moses' life to his glory? And still to this day, it is a picture. Moses could not enter. Why? Because he represented the law. And the law cannot take us into the land of promise. Only Joshua, the second can. Joshua, the same name of Jesus. The law leads us to Jesus, but cannot cross the Jordan. That's the picture, and Moses was to reveal it. And though his desire for the land of promise may have been good, when he came back with the hammer and hit the chisel, God directed it over here. And he said, I will prove my glory through you. Thank, Moses. Thank you, Moses, for being submitted. And he took the request and directed it into his glory. He didn't forsake Moses. He directed Moses to reveal his glory. Isn't that the whole aim? Isn't that the whole goal? Moses' request was used, and it was used to bring glory to God. We have a demoniac in the Gadarenes who, remember the man's, uh, the, the spirits are cast at him and goes into pigs and they go over a hillside? Uh-huh, that's the story. So the man is set free by Jesus, and he requests to go with Jesus. Well, that's a reasonable request. Could I join your party, basically? But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done. And guess what? He did. Was it a bad request? No. But his chisel movement upon, his hammer movement upon the chisel was directed in a different way to bring glory to God. So even though it might look like God says no, he doesn't say no, he's directing the chisel. When you in good conscience, in agreement with the best you know, you want to be with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. You say, could I go with you? And he says, do this. You see, we are submitted as the artisan. We say, oh, I see what you're doing. You want to put an eyeball right here. And he says, well, swing the hammer. And he moves it down here. He says, see, I wasn't making an eyeball there. However, your hammer movement is still being used. You see, God is directing the chisel to bring about a greater glory. Paul intended to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit him. Isn't that a strange statement? What was he going there for? Share the gospel. 
Why wouldn't the Spirit allow him? Because the Spirit of God had a greater purpose. That's always the case. You're the young sculptor. You don't fully understand what God is revealing. Your job is to submit hammer and chisel and say, and I will swing. I will swing to the best I know. But it's a groan. He translates the groan into the work of glory. So Paul intended to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit him. And instead he heard him in a dream the cries of the man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. God wanted Paul in Macedonia, not in Bithynia. Paul's heart and motive when he swung the hammer was right. And God directed that to bring glory to his name. And of course, Jesus in the garden physically yearned to have this cup pass. But he submitted to the will of the Spirit leading him to the cross. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the outline, the shape, the features, and the loveliness of the Son of David. So one thing you can be confident of is that when you swing in agreement with God, the glory of God will come out, always. And how will you know the glory of God? How will you know what it's supposed to look like? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one revealing to you the outline of his form, the shape. How is it going to fit in this slab? The features and the loveliness of the Son of David. You ever been with an artist and they just have a mental picture in their head? And they, my, my brother's an incredible artist, and he can draw out of his imagination. And so he does, it's easier to watch an artist when they have a picture in front of them or a muse because then you can say, oh, yeah, oh, I see what they're doing. My brother just starts drawing. He has these, all these thoughts that are coming out. I'm like, what's he doing? And he always starts with funny things. Like most people give big shapes and then fill it in. My brother will start with an eye and then build out. And so as a result, you're like, what, is it? what are we looking at here? Is that a bug? And it turns into an eye? Well, that's sort of like this. We have a marble slab, and God starts with a finger, and we're expecting a nose. Like, oh, I see what you're doing. What? What is that? And as a result, we don't fully see what he's doing, but we submit, and we say, you know what you're doing, and I will walk in agreement with your mastery. You know how to bring forth the glory of God. Could you imagine being Jesus? You know that Jesus submitted, just like I'm describing for you? He's God, but he came and submitted to what the Father would do. And the Father put his hand upon his hand on the hammer and his hand upon his hand on the chisel. He said, Father, I will only swing as you swing. I will only chisel as you chisel. The words I speak will only be the words you're speaking. Can you imagine? He came under the hooper and tucano of God. And he submitted to it. And as a result, could you imagine? He says to Lazarus and to Mary and Martha, this sickness will not end in death. So what's going to be in our mind? In the name of God Almighty, Jehovah, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, be healed, Lazarus. No. In fact, God says to Jesus, come away, leave Bethany. He takes him away from Bethany. And Lazarus is over there sick. In fact, he dies. Uh, Father, the chisel movements on this aren't quite what I was expecting. But he submitted. He submitted to the master artisan. And four days later, after his death, he's called back. And it was for a greater glory. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. However, what looks like a mar, what looks like God has failed, God has never failed. So one thing you can always be certain of in your prayer life 
even though it may look as if God didn't quite understand or didn't get it right. The four days away from Bethany don't quite sit right in your understanding. You can trust him. He knows the outline of the form that he's shaping. You thought he was shaping an earlobe. Oh, no, he was working on the heart. He was shaping something much bigger. John 14, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He shall testify of me. How are you going to learn of Jesus? How are you going to learn what comes out of this slab? The Holy Spirit will teach you. Oh, his loveliness. Oh, his beauty. His eyes, his ears, his chin, his stately physique. I will reveal it to you. Because you can say, how am I supposed to know? I know. The Holy Spirit knows. He shall testify of me. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will show you what it is not, so that you will recognize what it is. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak. And he shall show, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. He shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. This is the third thing the Holy Spirit will do. He's a master artisan. The Holy Spirit shows us how we ought to chisel. You see, he doesn't just direct our chisel when we don't know what to pray. But he actually will teach us where to chisel. He'll entrust us with things. I want to work on the head now. You see, sometimes we don't know. But other times he will reveal it to us. And we will actually know what he's working on. And the Holy Spirit shows us how we ought to chisel and with how much force we ought to swing our hammer. He leads us with perfect exactitude, with precision and beautiful artistry. You see, he's making you an artist. He doesn't just do all the work, he actually has you participate and grow. One of the mysteries of Christianity is the idea of perfection. Because, you know, certain Christians will say, no, we are perfect the moment we come to Jesus. Well, there's a part truth in that. You see, he's perfect, and we're clothed in him. So therefore, before the Father, we are deemed perfect. We are justified in his perfect work. However, underneath that clothing, we're still a young artist. And we are not perfect. And so as a result, he gives us his Holy Spirit to begin to perfect us. And the perfecting of the saints is the concept of sanctification. It's that which is making us likened unto God. Okay? So it's very important to understand that there are two things happening. God will take us in our imperfect state and reveal his perfection. However, he also is training us all along the way in how to handle a hammer and how to handle a chisel. However, he should never remove his hand from either. We are dependent upon him the entire while, even though we know better as we progress what he's doing. We have a clear understanding. It's like, I, I understand this now. I, he was working on the left hand the whole time. And now someone else near us is like, what's he doing? Like, he's working on the left hand. It's the hand of dependence. He's working on that right now for you. You're going to love it. You see, you're in a position to actually help other people understand too. Because the Holy Spirit has acquainted you with his, with his artistry. The parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Everything you will need to know, he's your teacher. You have a personal tutor to instruct you in how to live this life. Oh, this is a big one. The Holy Spirit leads us to the workshop, and even when our eyes are clouded with tears, our hands are weakened with trembling, and our vision for the finished work is marred. Have you ever had that where you see clearly? And then something happens in your life. Something that sort of undermines your confidence. It just sort of gives you a blow. And your knees are knocking. Your eyes are cloudy. Your, your mind isn't very clear. 
And so you're looking at the slab, and just yesterday you knew what he was doing, but today you're a little out of sorts. Well, you need a parakletos. You need the hooper entuchano of God. So it says, even when that vision of the finished work is marred, he leads us to swing with groaning hammer blows, size of the soul upon the marble. And he takes these most precious moments of weakness to reveal the most beautiful attribute of our David's glory. It's in and through our weakness that he reveals most powerfully his sovereign artistry. This is a hard one to explain, but that's what Romans 8.26 is about. In your weakest moments comes forth his greatest glory. So when you can't see, when you are wholly dependent and groaning, saying, God, all I know is I'm supposed to hammer. All I know is that without prayer, I can't see the hand of God moved. I must have the hand of God move in this situation, but I don't know how to pray. He says, swing. And in that beclouded state, in that weakened state, comes forth the greatest attributes of God's glory. I can personally testify to this. The greatest strength points in my life now, as I stand here before you, have all come out of my greatest weakness. Bar none. I cannot explain it any other way. But my life has been built in and through the difficulties I've faced, not in and through successes. I am who I am because of his strength in weakness, not because of my ability to overcome. His hooper entukano is what I praise. He has done it. He took those weakened moments when all I had was a, grass, a gasp. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to curl up in a ball, fetal position, or as I call it, dead bug position, and groan. God, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to pray. And yet, I'm praying. What's my prayer? It's a groan. <laughs> Sometimes it has tears. Sometimes it has convulsions. It doesn't even come out in noise. It's an agony of soul. And yet, out of those deepest, hardest moments have come forth the most beautiful flowers the most beautiful evidences of the attributes of Christ in me. I think any of you that have children, there's a picture there in it. Children are hard, and yet they're the greatest blessing. It's one of those funny things. I remember when I first had a child, uh, I thought there was a conspiracy. You know, everyone's like, oh, Eric and Leslie, come on. You need to have children. You're going to love it. So then I had a child, and I didn't get any sleep. And life was very, very difficult for a whole long stretch of time. And I remember thinking, this was purposeful. <laughs> there was a master plan to harm my life. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't love my child. However, at first, the difficulty of it seems as if you're weakening. You know, as a, as a parent, you, you feel like you've gone weaker instead of stronger when you get a child. It's like, oh, I used to be able to do this. I would have been able to do that. Oh, I was always available for this. You feel weaker. And guess what? With every child comes a greater strength. It's the backwards logic. The world doesn't understand it. They look at children. Eh. However, there's a secret here, and it's the kingdom of heaven. What looks like weakness actually is leveraged by God into greater strength. It's the strength in the hand of a mighty man. Who would have ever guessed? With every child that I've had, I've found a greater strength in my life. Talk about backwards and bizarre. Yeah. It's the hooper and tuchano of God. The grace of God increases. 
the hooper and tucano of God. If you're like, I got this, God, and you're on the putt-putt green, and you don't think you need help, guess what? You oftentimes will swing on your own. And you might miss. You might get close. But guess what? When you know you're weak and you can't even hold the putter, it's pretty easy to allow God to come in and show his artistry. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So what that sounds like is that the Spirit of God is groaning. However, the Spirit of God is hooper and tuchano. He's overseen. He's actually grabbing our hand on the hammer and on the chisel. And so what is coming out of the movement is the groan. We are the ones groaning. He is the one overseeing, superintending the groan. The groan actually comes from him through us. He is praying through us. It's his groaning. We are submitting in our weakness and saying, please groan through me. And our groan, though it seems imperfect and though it is unintelligible to us, the words cannot be uttered means without words. It has no expression, no ability to articulate. It's him speaking. And he knows what he's saying. He knows the mind of God. He knows what needs to happen in and through this weakness. And so when we simply surrender this workshop and say, this slab belongs to you, this moment, this weakness, this agony is yours, I can't do it. I am unable to make glory come out of this. But I'm weak, and somehow in your weak, my weakness, your strength is made perfect. Do it, and do it now. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. That which is thrown up from the depth of the soul when it is stirred with a terrible tempest is more precious than pearl or coral, for it is the intercession of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the groaning. That which comes up out of the storm, that which comes up out of the greatest difficulty, he says, is more precious than pearl or coral, for it is the intercession of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is interceding with a hyper-intercession. He is overseeing even our groans, he is enabling us even in our weakest moments. We still feel like we need to be qualified to stand before God in heaven. But we are not fit to bear the name of Christ. We are weak creatures. And yet he is not. And he has come in to fulfill the great commission that we've been given. He can do it. He will do it. He is able to do it. Get this. He's desirous to do it. He's ready to do it. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's forming the divine nature within us. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus. And he's revealing the manifold wisdom of God into all the heavenly realms and in through our lives. This is so bizarre to even comprehend, but this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is the master artisan. So let's look at the scriptures. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, that your marble slab may, be, may reveal God having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. Our slab is being changed into the image of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Who's doing it? The Spirit of the Lord. Michelangelo, the messenger of who God is. He has come. And he has grabbed our hammer. He's grabbed our chisel. Though our hands are on it, he is directing us in the process. And from glory to glory, 
there is an evidence of the image of God being shaped, formed out of an imperfect marble. Ephesians 3. Whereof I am made a minister, says Paul, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Listen to this. To the intent. What's the Holy Spirit doing? To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. That the whole world would see the masterpiece. They would see the image of God in and through us, our workshop. Out of our workshop will come a picture, a masterpiece, a statement of his glory. Seeing the giant turned into the man of triumph. That's what we're seeing here. Who can do it? He always leads us in triumph. He always reveals Jesus through the marred marble. He takes all the shrapnel and rock dings and turns them into the intricate loveliness of Jesus Christ. He turns our life of sin into a picture of his grace and glory. That's what he does. Three options of the chiseling saint. Two of the three options stink. All right, that only leaves us one option that I think is reasonable for us to consider today. So let's look at option number one. Well, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I'm not very good at this. So I don't swing the hammer lest I mar the marble. You see, some of us are so afraid to ask. We're so afraid to exert on this marble. I don't want to mess it up. It's a good point. You have to admit that there's some reason there. But many of us are paralyzed in our praying because we're so afraid of marring the marble. And God says, pray. But I, I, I don't know how to pray. Pray. Let me oversee you. Let me pray through you. You see, most of us are trying to pray with our own putt-putter. And as a result, we are, in a sense, marring things. And yet God has led us to the end of ourselves to say, I can't do this. So he says, will you let me? And when we let him, we need to swing the hammer. So this one stinks. Don't swing the hammer unless you mar the marble. Don't, don't do that. Okay, how about this one? This is another option, which, by the way, stinks. We swing the hammer softly and delicately so that if, you, if we are incorrect in our chisel position, the damage will be limited. Have you ever felt that, too? It's like, well, I don't know exactly what to pray in this situation. And I could name a whole bunch of options for that. Someone gets sick in our midst. Do you ever notice that we all end up with a hammer and a chisel? Some of us are like, <laughs> and we're like, whoa, buddy. Uh, excuse me, but we're not even sure that God wants to do a big chunk out of the marble right in that spot. And so as a result, we're like, ding, 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 just in case. God is like very much against this whole thing of helping that person who's sick. Ding, 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 ding. And so swing the hammer softly and delicately so that if you are incorrect in your chisel position, the damage will be limited. It actually is reasonable. However, God says, swing, swing, pray boldly, ask audaciously. But I don't even know what to ask. I've given messages here about asking audaciously. And even I, even as I'm up on stage, I'm struggling to think of an audacious ask. Like, what should I ask? I, I want it to be audacious. I sometimes, even the more I talk about being audacious in prayer, the less I have that's audacious sounding. I feel limited in my own understanding. Out comes a groan. God, this is my audacious groan. <laughs> Could you translate that into an audacious request? Because I'm, I, my audacious requests stink. 
Now, here's another option. This is the one I'm going to encourage. Swing the hammer and trust that he will direct the chisel and take our groaning swings and work in and through them a picture of glory and majesty. See, many of us are like Moses. We see the promised land, but we're, we're afraid to ask because what if he says no? You know that God directed Moses. He didn't permit him to enter the promised land, but he revealed his glory in and through this man. Are you willing to be submitted as a Moses? That even though your swing might be saying, I want to go there. And he says, but will you go here to Mount Pisgah? Yes. I trust that you know what you're building. I trust that you know how to sculpt. And so I will ask boldly and allow him to answer just as boldly. He will always overdo what he does in answer. He will never under-meet our needs. He will always go beyond. The burden. We're going to call this the prayer of the Spirit. So here's going to be my encouragement to you. We're going to get practical. How do you pray? What do you pray? You know, there's a whole bunch of dying people on the earth today. And if you were to try and pray for each one of them by name, uh, you would start now and you'd never make it through. And that's without stopping. How do we pray? There's a lot of things that sound like good prayers, but how do we pray? What do we pray for? You don't know, do you? Well, God knows. You see, we're called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what he calls the temple of God. Jesus was mad because they had money changers in the temple of God. He's turning over those tables. This is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. It's the temple of God. Paul says, do you not know that you're the temple of God? You're meant to be a house of prayer. It's the house of the Spirit. It's Michelangelo's workshop. And so what he gives us is burdens. He says, over here. And you see the spot of the marble. He even put an X up there. You want me to hit there? And so oftentimes we don't quite know exactly what he wants to do there, but we know to pray there. Have you ever felt a burden for a lost soul? Someone who doesn't know Christ? Where's that come from? Do you think that comes from the enemy? Oh, no. See, why is he showing you that? Why is he giving you a burden? Pray. Well, how am I supposed to pray? Pray. God will lead you in the praying. And as you continue praying, sometimes you get more specificity. Sometimes as you're praying, what you find is that you know that the burden is alleviated. And you've prayed what you should pray. And God gives you another burden. It's a burden. It's hard to explain. It's, I don't like sounding mystical and weird by saying burden. But when you've had a burden, you know exactly what I mean. You care. There's a grief in your soul. There's a pain. There's an agony. Pray. Swing the hammer in that spot. You don't quite know what sometimes to ask for, but you know to pray. You ever felt that where you're stymied and you're like, I don't know what to pray. Pray big is what I would encourage you to do. Pray big because God will still outbig you. No matter what you pray, God wants to go beyond it. And get this, he will. In fact, that's the promise. He will go beyond that. So the burden, the prayer of the spirit, when someone is sick, oh, that's really hard. Does God want us to pray for healing? Or does God want them to die and get the chance to go into his presence in heaven? When you have your 95-year-old grandparents, you know, you almost feel bad sometimes praying that they would be healthy. It's like, if I'm 95, let me go. Please, I want to go be with Jesus. So you deal with this struggle. How am I supposed to pray? And so in these things... Lostness, when you see someone who's lost around you and you have a burden for it, here's the simple rule of thumb. Pray for them. 
pray. Pray with all your might. Pray. How God directs that chisel is his business. However, you know one thing to do, and that's to pray. But there might be someone behind that person that you've never even met. And as you're praying for that, God's directing that heat of the Spirit directly towards that person that you've never seen. That's his business. It's not yours. You trust the master artisan. You swing. And you swing with might. Need of any kind. As we navigate through these things, what I want to encourage you to do is start praying bigger prayers. I want you to pay, pray bigger prayers without concern that you're going to mar marble. I want you to pray bigger prayers knowing that God is able to slow down your hammer and direct your chisel. He is able to direct you in your praying. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But. Look at that big but. I should have made it even bigger. But. But the Holy Spirit has been given you. To do what? Hooper en I, I can't do this, God. I don't know how to make this shot. Do you mind if I make it? Just put your hands right here. There you go. There you go. All right, pull it back. There you go. It just went in the hole. That's right. I never miss. You see, what God sometimes does, even, is we're, we're on hole 10. And he chips it. And it goes right in hole in one and hole 18. We're like, uh, that wasn't what I was. He goes, I know. But I still used your readiness and your willingness. You see, I, I had to finish up this course fast. We needed to get it in 18 now. We may not know what to pray, but we know to pray. That's the key for a Christian. You don't maybe know what to pray, but you know to pray. AKA, we may not know what God is carving, but we know we must swing the hammer. So how should we swing that hammer? With all our might. Whatever you have to give and to put in that hammer, you put in that hammer. You swing. And you swing faithfully knowing that God hooper entukanos the situation. He is directing. You are submitting. And as you submit and as you pray boldly for what seems obvious in front of you, we would all be praying for the healing of Lazarus immediately. I don't know how many of you are thinking, yeah, let's have him die and then go be buried for four days. That probably wouldn't be in our prayer process. However, what would we say? In agreement with the promise of Jesus Christ, this sickness will not end in death. God's promised it. So therefore, God, heal him. God, heal him. Heal Lazarus of whatever disease this is. Heal him. What if he dies? God, heal him. God, heal him. You see, God will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Are we asking? Are we giving him the opportunity to turn our chisel blows, though they be misdirected at times, into a picture of even a greater glory? The lesson of Joash. 2 Kings 13. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. By the way, Joash, the king, is looking for something. He's looking for something that Elisha has. He wants the power of the Spirit. Elisha is one of the most powerful prophets that ever lived on earth. And Joash wants something. And Elisha knows it. Even the quote that he gave, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, 
is a quotation from what Elisha said to Elijah when Elijah was parting. And Elisha got a double portion of what Elijah had. So Joash is a pretty smart guy. And so he's saying even the same quotes, like maybe the quote will somehow do it. And so Elisha says, take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said unto the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elijah put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And the arrow of the deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. Okay, now, Elisha's walking through some process, but Joash doesn't know exactly what it is. Sort of like us. We're not exactly sure what God's doing here. <laughs> we just know we need help. We need what Elisha has. So what he says, we do. And so he says, take up the arrows and strike the ground with them. So what do we do? So he said, smite upon the ground, and he smote three times and stayed. In fact, I'm even sort of impressed with how many times Joash struck the ground. Three times. He just said, strike the ground. I can see me going, funk. And looking back at Elijah, like, okay, what's next? It says, and he smote three times and stayed, and the man of God was wroth with him. What? Elisha was mad. And said, thou shouldest have smited, smitten five or six times. Then, thou hast, that, then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt die, smite Syria but three times, and Elisha died, and they buried him. That's what it says. That's the end. So there's a story in history that has a point to it. And that is, God has given you a hammer, and he says, strike the chisel. And we're like, okay, kink. And God says, no, 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 no. I said, strike the chisel. You see, out of your obedience will come forth the power of the Spirit. Don't just tink, tink, tink. Strike the chisel. Take the arrows and strike the ground. Well, how about for us? Take the hammer and strike the chisel. So, how many times should you strike it? It's like you look around, you're like, okay, kink. No, if God says strike the chisel, we strike the chisel until he grabs our arm and says enough. Our God has asked us to strike the chisel, to take the hammer of prayer that he's given us and to hit. So how should you do it? You should do it with all your mind. You should do it with everything in you. What if you don't know how to pray? You strike the chisel. That's what you do know to do. He knows how to direct your prayers. He knows how to direct the groans. All you may have right now at this season of your life is a groan, but leverage that groan against that chisel. Groan! Groan and groan! And out of this weakness, out of this young student-apprentice artist of us will come forth a picture of what can only be explained in terms of heaven. When asked to swing the hammer, don't swing it weakly. Don't swing it hesitatingly, but swing it decidedly. And swing it until the burden to swing is relieved. And the master artisan says, that is enough, dear apprentice. So my mental picture of it is this. That he says swing, so I swing. He's directing the chisel the entire while. I may think I have it figured out of what he's doing. And I may in my mind say, oh, okay, I got this one. 
And yet, what if it turns out to be a different part of the body than I was thinking? Do I get mad? And you'll say, that was a waste of time. Everything he's directing me to do is to bring out the fullness of his glory, which means not one prayer will ever be wasted. Not one. And not one prayer will ever fall to the ground unused by the master artisan. Not one swing of the chisel. And when you start to grasp that, even though your ends may not have been gained, his ends were. And you are a part of something bigger than your ends. This is about him and his glory. For his maximum glory, submitted to the greater answer in every situation. So one of the statements that you can always make as you're praying, even as you're groaning, is God, this is the best I know, and that's to swing. But even though I think we're carving a nose right now, if you have something bigger and better, I submit to your maximum glory. You know that we pray boldly? At Ellerslie, I teach people to pray boldly. I, pray, I teach them to pull and pull the promises of heaven till they get to this earth. However, they may come looking a little different than we expected. In other words, when God answers prayer, which he always will, it's for his maximum glory that we're truly after. It's not something very specific that's in our mind, in our understanding. What if he knows better? Well, that's a funny statement. How about this? He does know better. We submit to that. And he will accomplish on this earth that which is in heaven. He will accomplish in and through this marble slab that which will reveal his glory. That's our confidence. That's where our faith lies. We have the spirit of God to hooper and to kano, to govern our praying so that when we simply say, I am your vessel, I will swing. He will swing through us and accomplish his ends for his maximum glory. You know that you can pray for someone's health? And no matter the outcome, God will exceed your praying. God will always exceed. You see, our job is to swing, not to define how things work. That's his job. Our job is to obey, is to yield. We don't know exactly what he's doing. We're getting an idea, and sometimes we're right on, and other times he says, you see, you thought I was doing the nose. Uh-uh. I had a different plan. And guess what? We laugh. We say, you're good. You are, you are really good. That's right. And in heaven, when we all get there, what are we going to say? It's one big song of, you are really good. That's exactly what we're going to say. Every little chisel movement down here that we may have stumbled over and said, I don't understand this, will make perfect sense in the heavenlies. Now unto him, listen to this, this is an amazing statement that we're going to finish with. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask. I know it says or think, but I want you to catch this. All that we ask. We're asking. We're asking because he asked us to ask. But he is going to go exceedingly abundantly beyond it. You see, we're living in diddly squat land. We're living with such a small view. We are young, aspiring sculptors. We're not the master. He knows what he sees in that marble. Let him accomplish it. Submit to that. He will go exceedingly abundantly beyond. That's a promise. Take it to the bank. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Knows the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi. 
pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.